0: To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives, so don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. In part two of our three-part Australian Investors podcast mini-series on ethical investing in Australia, sponsored by Australian Ethical, the leader in ethical managed funds and superannuation, I'm joined by Mike Murray, CFA. Mike is the head of domestic equities at Australian Ethical. In this conversation, Mike walks us through the investment pillar of Australian Ethical's process. We talk about business models, including repeatability, scaling, gross margins, and capital intensity. In all honesty, we get a little nerdy and dive into valuation, expected returns, and risk management for investors. In this conversation, Mike shares the secrets behind companies like Cochlear Limited, Downer, and Fisher & Paykel. If you want to know what makes great companies great investments, this is the episode for you. Before I ask Mike for his best ever investment, here's a quick note. Please remember that this episode is part two of our three-part miniseries, Ethical Investing in Australia. In part one, I spoke with Dr. Stuart Palmer, Head of Ethics Research, and we set the scene for this chat with Mike. So if you go thinking, mm, maybe I'm a little lost, just go back and listen to part one first. Part one should be available in your podcast player, and I've included a link in the show notes. Without further ado, here's Mike Murray, Australian Ethicals Head of Domestic Equities, answering my very first question, what is the best investment you've ever made?
1: Oh uh, look, I'm I'm gonna sort of um say Australian ethical shares below a dollar when I joined Australian ethical in, in oh, wow. the, about six years ago and you know they're sort of currently around the nine dollar level I put a little bit of money into Australian ethical at that point so um that's that's been a, a great one
0: wow yeah well I've just checked it um eight dollars 96 at the time of recording so that's a, what's that? an eight or a nine bagger so um you're sitting pretty on that one
1: yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's, it's, it's certainly been a good one. Um, so, you know, the business is, I think you, you will have followed the company, you know, obviously it's um it's going really well. So it's an exciting time to be part of it.
0: Yeah, for sure it is. And um, mm. that's the, one of the things that we spoke about with, with Stuart was that it's it's great because as um, Australian ethical is publicly listed, investors can look at the company and see what the company is doing, but also then become investors in, the, in uh, whether it's inside super or outside of super. Um, okay. Now that I've given you the easy one, that's the the softball. The hard one is what's the worst investment you've made?
1: Look, I, I'm going to give you one that that sort of you know you have those investments that sort of stay with you. I don't know if it's the worst investment I've ever made, but I remember in the early 2000s, we were invested in a company that's no longer listed called Maine Nicholas, um and they were an old right. old hospital kind of conglomerate um run by a guy called Peter Smedley. Um, and it it was one of those stocks that you know I, it was a real lesson lesson to me as an as an earlier. Um, or a junior sort of analyst because um, the company came out with a very bullish guidance and I placed a lot of conviction in their guidance and they subsequently retracted that guidance very quickly and I remember the stock mm. sinking like a stone and that sort of sick feeling and and you know it was just I guess it was a, it was a it was a good lesson um, and I think one of the things that happened in that in that particular situation was. The company had actually misunderstood its customer base. It was running hospitals, and it was and, and almost and it thought that the the patient was the customer. But really, in their case, it was the doctor who was the mm. customer, and they really went off track. So that was a a blast from the past.
0: Hey, I might just follow up on that, Mike. Mm. What do you mean by the doctor was the customer?
1: Well, if you think about a, a, a hospital business, um, obviously hospitals are a business as well as providing mm. a, you know a great social good. Um, really, how do they make money? They make money by filling their operating theaters. Um, or or managing capacity utilisation effectively and they're building operating theatres and then um, bringing doctors in to utilise those theatres and so what May Nicholas did is it it sort of thought well we're going to cut the costs um, of all those sort of supplies um, that we provide those doctors with and we're going to tell tell them uh, we're going to run this in a very with a very commercial mindset Um, and I guess there was another lesson in that situation because it was about Companies also need to have some sort of a social purpose or a positive impact. You can't just run it, run a hospital as though the only thing that matters is the bottom line. Um, you mm-hmm. actually have to run it um, as an entity that's looking after all, all, all stakeholders. Um, and the doctors actually revolted in that case, and you know it caused a lot of damage to the business. And you know, I'd contrast mm-hmm. that with a, a company like Sonic Healthcare, which has obviously been a you know extremely successful company, but it's always put um, sort of clinical excellence, um, you know, at the forefront of, of what it's done.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Okay, I, I haven't thought about it in that way. That the doctors are actually the customers. Okay, great. The third question I wanted to, to fire away at you is, uh, who is the investor that you read the most?
1: Yeah, look, I, I don't read a lot of investment books. Um, hmm. I, I, I kind of have the view that it's better off working on a, a sort of a specific opportunity or like, you know, picking up an annual report and really getting to grips with the situation hmm. just because investors, investment is such a dynamic thing. Um, and every every case is different, right? So you, I mean, we've all kind of read some of the classics, you know, the Benjamin Grahams and the Warren Buffetts and things. Um, but from the once I think once you've got the fundamentals, um, I prefer to try to try to apply it to a specific situation. Um, something I do do a lot is talk to my uh, colleague Andy Gracie, who runs the Australian Shares Fund, mm. um, and we spend a lot of time just, um, I guess, as he does with other members of the team, debating ideas, thinking about ideas. Um, reflecting on different management teams um, and that, that's quite a sort of an intuitive process but I did bring along one book that I thought was quite interesting to share with you mm-hmm. I read this book called The Art of Performance by a guy called Josh Whiteskin. Um and I think that's an interesting book because the guy was a chess champion um, and they went on to make a movie about him um, and then he became a martial arts champion and he wrote this book about how to apply mm-hmm. different different methods of learning and wow. different types of learning to different situations um, so I, that's an example of a book that's that's influenced me,
0: yeah, right. okay. I've never heard of it. That's fascinating. um and i'll put I'll find it online and put a link in the show notes. Um, it, it's It's really interesting because you're basically what if I could paraphrase, correct me if I'm wrong here, basically what you're saying is spending time focusing on developing that pattern recognition of companies and identifying what works with business models and and people rather than spending more time on like the strategy and the kind of the theory behind it.
1: Yeah, well, look. <laughs> I think I, I clearly, clearly the theory of valuation um, and company fundamentals is, ve- is very, very important. Mm. Um, so I, I don't want to downplay that. Um, but I guess that there's two, there's two things that are really happening in analysis. There's a sort of systematic um, approach to analysis. Um, and you say you, you do need those fundamental tools. Um, but then, you know, it, you, you, you do also need that um, sort of gut feel, intuition. Um, you need a bit of bravery. Um, because very often in this game things go wrong. You know, it's very mm. rare that you know you buy something at exactly the right time. Um, often it goes wrong before it goes right, and so you you do have to, through time, if you don't have them innately, develop some of those um, the, those traits or or hopefully you get them from a team environment too you have team members that are, mm. are kind of pointing you in the right direction when you might be getting shaky on something or losing conviction on something but it is a it is a dynamic game um, and i think it's just something we're trying to get better at all the time there's no there's no sort of magic formula to investing mm. in in my view
0: mm. it's uh, so i'm gonna this is a perfect segue into our next question which is basically asking how you came to be involved in Australian ethical and um, knowing the rules of the game are really important because, and i note that uh, you're a cfa charter holder if i'm not mistaken
1: that's correct yeah.
0: yeah so how did you come to be involved then um with australian ethical as,
1: as an aside when i did my cfa i think there were 20 people doing them in oh, australia wow. so okay, it's, um, well, and i'm not so even when, that old well i don't think when, when i that old. when
0: i sat for <laughs> i this was before covid in the stadiums i did level one i think there would have been two or three thousand at least Yeah, it's amazing isn't it's least. amazing
1: yeah. um yeah, so how did, how did I end up here? So, look, here, here's the irony, right? My first job was at a place called uh, UBS Brinson in about 1996 mm-hmm. as, a, as a graduate analyst on, on the buy side, um, and I was given the tobacco and gaming sector uh, to cover. Um, and, look, you know what? I just really hated it, um, and, and it just seemed to me that, you know, you, you had these companies here that were just preying on people, um, and even, you know, you could go and meet with the management teams um, you know, I, I think we even had a listed tobacco company here at the moment, Rothmans, if I recall, you know, and you go and meet with them and, you know, the whole presentation would be how to get people to smoke more um, or how to get people, you know, in the gaming analogy, how to get people to play more poker, poker machines in areas where they could least afford it. Um, and look, I re- it really didn't gel with me. Like, um, I, loved, I loved being an analyst, but I, I, I didn't like being part of that process. And the funny thing was I went back actually went back to uni and did some, some postgraduate work and just wanted, wanted to sort of you know decide where where I wanted to head, and um, I did some time in management consulting, and then it, it ha- happened in the early two thousands. AMP Capital was setting up a um, an ESG fund, and it was you know Australian Ethical, obviously been around in the ethical space mm. for a long time, um, but this was you know it was a big play by a major what was a major institution, sadly sadly mm. no more. But at that point in time. Um, and and I couldn't believe that this opportunity existed, or even this this industry existed. Mm. You know, I was just so excited to to get in there on the ground floor, and I was there for for nine years, and to, you know, it was really formative for me.
0: Mm. Um, I think it's yeah, like you said, quite ironic that you started on that side of the fence, and quickly pivoted and, and this is where you've spent the majority of your time i noticed on your linkedin profile it's got you for decades basically focused on on this type of investing and, and ethical investing generally speaking um we had Stuart on the show who talked about the kind of the two pillars of the australian ethical process one being obviously the ethical research which mm-hmm. which he and the team are working on and then there's more the, the kind of the traditional investment side um, after you get that universe mm-hmm. so i'm i'm maybe to start things off um do you believe mm. that active ethical and investment management is, is a, the, the best combination for Aussie mm. equities? Mm.
1: Yeah, look, I'd I, I, I hesitate to say the best because, like, I think in, in everything, right, there's different ways of winning. Um, it mm. certainly served us at Australian Ethical very well over a long period of time, um, and, and I think we're really good at it. Um, and, and, look, I think... Um, you know the first thing you kind of got to acknowledge is that you know you're trying to do two things at once so it's, it's quite different um to to conventional investment management in in, in some respects mm-hmm. um so you've got you know quite a different universe for example um than, than a, a conventional investment manager um and now that can that can help be helpful it can kind of push you into some some of the right sort of areas and right sort of companies it can help you manage some of the risks um that you know that your other people may not be seeing um, but you've also got to be a good investment manager, right? It's no good just saying, sure. "Okay, now I'm just going to pick a whole lot of ethical companies and sort of hope that they go up um, mm-hmm. through time." So, you know, we 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 actually sort of have a uh, quite a bit of a um, quite a bit of independence as well as collaboration between the ethics team um, and the investment team, and we think that's important from a governance point of view because. What we don't want at the end of the day is the investment manager sort of saying, oh, well, I kind of like this company, therefore it's ethical or the ethical team saying, oh, it's ethical, therefore invest. Mm. Um, What we really want to do is find companies that meet our ethical charter and then within that universe, create a portfolio of companies um, that we think can outperform through time. Um, and so I, th- I think there are a few other advantages that we get in this process because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you're restricting the universe, you're restricting the universe. Mm. Um, they're, they're, therefore, you know, it's not an optimal portfolio. But some things that it's done for us is it would develop deep pockets of expertise in certain sectors. So we, we kind of know things like healthcare, uh, utilities, information technology really well. Um, I think it's pushed us away from always wanting to track a benchmark. You know, we know we've got this different universe. Mm. Um, so we, we're point. pretty benchmark unaware in terms of our... Uh, we are benchmark unaware in terms of our Aussie equity strategies. And so that, that's something that's really resonated with, it, with our clients. You know, they know what we stand for. They know that, that we're taking active risk um, as fund managers, and, and we think they want us to take um, active risk. And, and probably the final thing I'd say is that it has probably pushed us outside that kind of top 20, uh, you know, names. Mm-hmm. We've even got emerging companies fund, which invests outside the top 100, which has been really successful. So we ha- we have kind of benefited, I think. in in, in a number of ways from that, from that difference. And, you know, we're we're just proud of, proud of being different and who we are.
0: Yeah. And I think um, one of the things with Aussie equities is yes, there are maybe say 2,100 companies on the ASX, but if you exclude, you know, some of those sectors that are probably more prone to, you know, poor economics in terms of, you know, capital intensity and those types of things, you can get that down to a manageable list, but even then it's, it's still a lot to work through. So if you can develop that deep, expertise in these industries, like healthcare, for example, Mm. you know, is a very strong thematic, right? So Mm. that's a really interesting one. Um, How about then, I I guess this is probably the ideal time to ask this question. Mm. Um, If an investor is sitting back thinking, um, well, how does like the portfolio composition, um, let's say the high conviction fund, how does that Mm. Differ to a traditional ASX 300 or ASX 200, you know, benchmark. Yeah,
1: sure. And it's probably helpful to put it in context of our our three domestic active equ- equity strategies. Yeah. So our longest yeah. running strategy is the Australian Shares Fund, and that's a an all cap fund. You know, it does invest quite extensively, you know, in in the in the sort of X 100 space um, as well as the top 100. Um, and that's you know, that's got a 20 year track record. You know, it's got a really strong yeah, right. track record, and okay. and we're really proud of that. Um, and it's a very true to label fund. Um, run by Andy Gracie. And then, then the more recent fund was the Emerging Companies Fund. Um, and again, that's done really nicely for us and invests outside mm. um, the ASX 100. Um, and then, yeah, the latest fund we launched it on the 1st of October is, is the High Conviction Fund. We launched it as an unlisted trust on, on the 1st of October. And look, I, I would really position that as an extension of that capability we have Um, in bottom-up Australian share investing. So really, you know, it's a fundamental product. It shares that sort of characteristic of being benchmark unaware and it shares that characteristic, being very true to label um, in an ethical sense. Where it's slightly different um, is it does kind of contain itself largely to the ASX 300. So we're trying to invest in slightly more liquid, um, slightly slightly higher average market capitalization, companies on average. And, you know, as per the name, High Conviction, um, you know, it's a little bit more concentrated um than the other strategy. So it's running about 30 stocks. And you know, our our, our diversified Australian shares fund or is, you know, is running upwards of, of 60 stocks. Because um, it, it does have a sort of a longer tail and some of those smaller cap names. Mm. Um, and what that's allows allowed us to do is um, launch the, you know, the the new high conviction strategy is an ETF. Um, yeah. so we just launched that last week under the ticker aeae on on cboe and that's that's a really exciting thing for us because you know a lot of people do like to invest with us directly and now they can invest with us directly on on the um on the exchange
0: mm, mm. and that's i think this is a, an appealing feature of the etf industries as, as well as we bring active funds into the mix um, we're seeing more uptake amongst investors and even in financial advisors who prefer um, exchange traded products so um, it's a really easy liquid way to get into a position like this um i'm, I'm we'll, we'll talk about the high conviction aspect of it in just a moment in terms of like portfolio composition and management and that type of thing but let's let's start with um basically what you're looking for i know that there are four pillars in the investment process because i got some slide um docs ahead of time and, and i had a look through um basically the, the, the process that you're following and i know from the previous conversation with Stuart, that we talk about, you know, excluding companies or including companies into the universe based on ethical uh, considerations. Mm. But I know that there are like, there are these four uh, pillars or the, the investment merits that you you're waiting and you're judging these companies again. So I'm hoping you can step us through those one at a time mm. and feel free to use examples as we go through, because I think this is kind of like the meat in the sandwich of um, the investment strategy. I'm, I'm keen to drill
1: into this yeah that's great let me let me try to give you some e- examples of each of those and and clearly you know there's no um there's no sort of secret sauce in business model balance sheet fund innovation expected return these are core tools that you'll find at any fund manager but i think you yeah. know really the it, it's all to do with how these are applied you know as part, sure. of, part of a process um and so let me let me give you some things that we like um, you know just just almost a laundry list of things that we like when we're looking at business models and we've learned mm. these through time and what one of the very obvious ones is we like repeatability of earnings right or, or what we call you know recurring earnings so um you know take a, a business you know we do a lot of work in the healthcare sector um, take a business like cochlear is that a recurring um, revenue stream well it has been through time um, but a lot a lot of that is coming from individual cochlear implants and new sales rather than mm. um, you know what, what they call the services part of their business so it's earnings are actually dominated by the sale of implants. Um, Now, if I compare that to Fisher & Paykel Healthcare, um, Fisher & Paykel Healthcare have a a much bigger percentage of revenue that's coming from consumables. So I would argue from, you know, I think they're both fantastic companies, but in some respects, Fisher & Paykel has a slightly stronger business model um, than, than Cochlear from the point of view of repeatability um and then you know you can you can sort of take that analogy to other sectors where you might look at a a contracting company that has one big contract that expires in three years and you know Mm. I would say there's nothing really repeatable about that business you know and that they're the sort of businesses that we don't like um a a second one in terms of business models is you know we think a lot about scalability and this often has to do with you know a a level of IP um that a company has um with the ability to get economies of scale if you looked at one of the big um, supermarkets or in a technology company, you know, the ability to go offshore. Um, so, you know, a, an industry where I guess we don't think has, has many economies of scale would be, for example, the aged care sector. We saw the aged care mm. sector list on the ASX with great, great promise, um, a lot of acquisitions and sort of roll ups in that space. And it wasn't really clear that one plus one made more than two. Um, mm. And I think that's because, you know, really, they are a services style business. Um, And and that's something that, you know, I guess in our process we do tend to privilege product-oriented companies because we think product-oriented companies scale better than services. Um, And so, yeah, a company like Fisher and Pike or or Cochlear, I mentioned before, great product-oriented companies with global edges that have scaled really nicely. Um, That brings me to the third thing. Um, We like companies with high gross margins. Um, You know, we've certainly found that businesses with low gross margins um you know that they, they can strike i mean this, it's certainly not the case for every company you know like a um you can be you can be a um a, you know a big a big uh, large-scale retailer with low, low gross margins and do very well but something like the healthcare space um we certainly like to see company with high gross margins and then the final one is capital intensity um, so we're very aware of um how much capital companies having to re uh, reinvest in their business um, where they are in that sort of cap- capital journey, and you know, are we getting an appropriate return return on that capital? And I'm just asking one question there, Mike, yeah. just
0: on capital intensity, how would you measure that or even just get an insight into that?
1: Look, a very, um, I mean, you could, for example, you could simply look at return on assets through time, um, and you know, uh. You certainly can. You find uh, you can see a company that's growing its earnings, but actually um, its return on assets is decreasing because it's deploying funds in a, uh, a suboptimal way. Um, I'll give you a counter example. Um, a company we've invested in the High Conviction Fund is um, Downer um, more recently, and and you know they used to be a mining contractor, and that wasn't something that um, really uh, that they were excluded from our universe um, uh, under under ethics charter. Um, they're no longer the out of that business, so they're within our, our ethical universe. But what we really like about this business is that the mining contracted business was also very capital intensive, and so mm. the capital requirements in that business have fallen. And so one of the things, the other ways of, of measuring that, I guess, is just comparing a company's. Um, what I would call sustainable capex so you know a a sort of a through the cycle normalized capital expenditure number against what they're recording as depreciation in their accounts and you know in that case they're recording to capex below their depreciation so we think they're on the right side of that equation Hmm.
0: how about the second thing then which is the the balance sheet um what are you in particular studying here to to get this you know through to like let's do further research
1: on this yeah sure look um and you know, there's obviously a whole whole range of things. I mean, this thing about capital intensity obviously plays in, into balance sheet, right? Because a, a company mm. that has to spend a lot of capital um, to sort of re- replenish itself, um, it, it, that's going to eat into the balance sheets through time. Um, and so, I think what what the most probably the most important thing about looking at the balance sheet is not looking at it in isolation. Um, it's also looking at it in the context of of the particular business and the particular industry um and so you know i guess a very obvious example is obviously companies with lower degree of variability um in in their earnings um can can sustain a higher a higher gearing so something like an airport as a good example although even COVID um proved that wasn't necessarily the case and mm. you know there was a situation where where those companies were going to need need additional capital um so yeah so we look at the um at, at the business fundamentals um you know how cyclical a business is um i guess you know, if you're in a cyclical business and you're at the bottom of the cycle um, and, and the business is highly geared, well, maybe that's okay if you have a, have a strong degree of confidence that actually earnings are going to go up and we really are at bottom of cycle levels. Um, but, you know, on all things being equal, we do, like most people, prefer companies um, that are more conservatively geared. We certainly don't like companies um, gearing up against what we would call um, sort of non-recurring revenue streams. We think that's a, um, mm. a, a recipe for disaster um and you know you also got to look at you know the phasing of debt and i think you know there'll be a lot of focus on that and now we're talking about interest rates going up um people want, will want to know very shortly um how companies are, are hedging that debt and also what what sort of pricing power do they have in their core business because if you cost if you've got a lot of debt uh, and your cost of interest is going up then you know what you're going to need to do is be able to put your prices up and then if you can't um then you've got a problem so there's some of the things we look at you know does the company own its property um or not um, you know, has the company taken very conservative provisions um if it, if it was a financial company? Um, we also look at things like you know apart from the sort of typical ratios like net debt to EBITDA uh, for a retailer, we might look at uh, fixed charges coverage ratios because um, those companies are often very reliant on on operating leases in the, in the situation mm. where they don't they don't own, own the property. Um, so they're just some some, some examples. Um, I think you know one of the things that were found, uh, during COVID, would, would quite a lot of capital raising activity, um, and so, like a, you know, I've been giving you, I'll just follow through on the Cochlear example. Mm. Um, you know, they raised a lot of capital because they thought their business, or their business was initially under pressure. Um, the business recovered more quickly than they expected, um, and actually now they've got surplus capital, their cash mm. on the balance sheet. And um, you know, we certainly can find companies in the at the moment, and we certainly always like them when we do that, you know, very high quality business models like Cochlear, um, you know, in in a sort of net cash position. And we, we think that's, that's quite, quite a strong position.
0: Yeah. I remember that um, Cochlear capital raise because it's quite substantial and it was very, very well supported. Mm. And I thought Mm. that it was very unique at the time, right? Because here's a company, I mean, unique being that uh, a credit to its, I guess, quality as a franchise and quality as, you know, a management team as well to be able to pull that off. So uh, yeah, great stuff. Uh, number three, which was a fundamental valuation. This is a question I like to ask because I think some people, particularly more aspiring investors, often come to investing more with the kind of scientific hat on and less of the kind of arc, the art, artistic hat on, meaning that yep. They, yep. they maybe think that uh, being a good investor is about being a great analyst and not necessarily, they kind of forget the investor part and just go straight to analyst and number mm. crunching spreadsheets, et cetera. So I'm interested to know how you and the team uh, you know, arrive at valuations, if you are beholden to them, how you go about that, anything that you can share there will, will be wonderful.
1: Yeah, and look, and look, um, it's a really good point that you make about that difference between the sort of um, systematic analyst approach and, and that sort of artistic or intuitive approach, and you definitely do see um, successful analysts um, coming from both ends of the spectrum. Mm, um, so do, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's one size fits all. Um, Look, our our primary valuation methodology is relatively simple, and we we like we like it that way. It's a PE that we adjust for um, what we perceive to be the risk of the business, the growth uh, opportunity in the business, um, and the duration of that growth. And we obviously try to normalize um, for the economic cycle and for anything else sort of one off that's happening in the business. Or let's take let's say that we think a company's. Um, undergeared then we want to allow for the ability to re gear that company through time or vice versa if it needs a capital raise in the future we want to allow for that in in setting our EPS which we then apply this sort of normalized PE to um, and look really that's just an approximation of a, of a DCF you know at the end of the day uh, um, a PE a PE that's adjusted in that way is sort of shorthand for a D- DCF and you know in, in my mind all these things are trying to trying to get to the same fundamental principle, which is, you know, how much money is a company going to give back to you? Um, when are you going to get that money? And what's the risk of of not getting it? Um, and so, you know, they're, they're coming at that problem. Um, but P comes at it in a, in a, in a very simple, simple way. Um, and so what we try to do is we have a core, a core valuation, what i call it an adjusted PER um, methodology so that we can compare companies uh, to each right. other. Um, but, you know, we're very cognizant that, for example, within a sector, there might be another uh, metric that's relevant to that sector. So I'll, I'll give you the example of the financial sector, uh, priced NTA, um, you know, can be, can be quite an interesting metric um, for a lot of the banks uh, and the insurance companies. Um, and, you know, some people in the tech space like to look at EV to sales, um, I know that, you know, some people are quite critical of that metric because they say that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't allow, you know, for businesses that might be loss-making forever, but I think, there's, you know, there's an intelligent way um to apply that ratio um you know if you if you have an understanding of what sort of returns a particular model can deliver through time again it's just trying to you know let, let's say a company's trading on an EV to sales of five times if you, you might be able to justify that if you know they can deliver a 20 percent um, EBITDA margin through time and you can convert that into sort of a EV to EBITDA metric and, and compare it amongst companies and, and that's something else that we do um, we certainly look at uh peer peer comparative valuations um, so if we are looking at the tech sector, we're certainly, you know, very aware of where major U.S. Uh, tech companies are. Um, and, you know, clearly it's, a, it's it's something controversial at the moment because we're seeing a bit of a sell-off in the tech sector. And uh, we do invest in that space. But, you know, it, in general, we're investing in companies that are, that are trading at sort of lower multiples than some, than some of those U.S. Uh, companies. So we think that gives us, gives us some buffer. Mm. Um, and look, the point of all this really, I think, is not, coming back to your original question, is not to come up with a perfect answer, but it's to have an analyst ask intelligent questions um, and build conviction and level Mm. of comfort in in, in what they're recommending.
0: I might just circle back, Mike, to one point that you touched on there and I'm just going to paraphrase here and you can tell me where I went wrong, Mm. which is that basically you're rebuilding an income statement because you're trying to get down to earnings Mm. and you might forecast it out. Sadly, I'm guessing, and then you're you're taking into account the risk of a business when you Mm. which i imagine you're discounting that back or like you have a future value in mind like mm. the price earnings ratio might be x in mm. you know mm. y number of years mm. um when you think about the risk of a business in using that kind of technique, mm-hmm. how are you thinking about that? You know, we're taught in mm-hmm. academia to use things like CAPM and, mm-hmm. you know, weighted average cost of capital and involve like things like beta and all that. Sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. are you thinking that way? Or are you thinking more like the business risk and what a business yeah. would reasonably trade at? If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, look, it does. And um, it's a really, really good question. Um, and the answer is that it, 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 it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, we, do, we do use a CAPM approach. Um, but when we think about the risk in a business model, we're not just purely thinking about correlation to the market, which I guess yep. would be a very purist um, CAPM approach. Um, so you know, it's very hard to kind of wrap all all of the risk characters up in a in a single number um, sure. that that resonates with people. And so you know, you know, you've got this idea that you know, from some people, that risk is um you know uh, correlation or you know a, a higher, degree vari- sorry, cor- higher degree of variability sorry not high degree variability than the market yep. um, other people will say well risk is uh, you know the risk of permanent loss of capital um which you know i, I think is a is a you know is a, is a fair fair definition of risk mm-hmm. um and then you've also got things like um you know okay if a government company's got balance sheet risk um or even if you've got management risk or you think the risk of making a stupid acquisition um, so you have all these sort of subjective variables um, and look, I think the key is to, you know, I, we, I probably prefer to see people having a real conviction on earnings rather than really moving models. Or I think if you, I think you can sort of um, get rid of some of the arbitrariness of this if you sort of constrain your risk assumptions within a, within a reasonable band, and then really try to get a lot of conviction in your in your earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, some of this also gets pulled in at the portfolio construction um, phase because you know you'll have a you'll have an individual company that might be, um, you know, ranking very well in, in your, your particular valuation system. Um, but then, you know, when the portfolio manager comes and looks at it and says, oh, well, I've never liked that industry before, you know, I don't want to back it, why is it going to be different this time? And so then he's sort of applying applying a risk overlay, which again, is fair enough, right? And, and unless you're a pure mm. quant manager, uh, most fundamental managers, even if I say that they're doing some version of this, right, because um, they're, they're incorporating risk in different ways, and it's not—it's not just as simple as um, pushing a you know a, a button on on a calculator. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can you can certainly have a situation where a company has a very strong expected return, but it, you know it's subject to a huge binary um, trade-off. Uh, and so in that kind of situation, you've got to adjust your position size because you don't want to have 10% of your portfolio in something that's going to be decided on, on a flip of a coin, even if on balance, if you can find a hundred of similar situations, you're going to do well, but you can't because um, mm. most of them are different. Long-width, long-winded answer. Um, and no, I'm sorry, there's not an exact answer on that one.
0: No, because that's that leads us perfectly into the fourth um, point, which is expected return. And you, you've kind of brought it up there, um, which is... I, I guess um, another way to express um, what we think about it as analysts is like the discount rate is like the expected return is kind of what's our hurdle rate, in other mm-hmm. words, what do we need from this company or this investment in order for us to justify them mm-hmm. making it? Is that how you you and the team think about
1: it? Yeah, certainly. So as, as I said, we you know we apply a, a CAPM approach with a with a beta, and so we're trying to get we are doing our best to get that in at that kind of valuation. Um, stage. So if we do think a company um, has, it, it's not as though um, we apply that afterwards, if, if we think a company has an elevated risk profile, it will, it will get captured um, in that beta and that will lower the PE that we think is appropriate, as it should. Yeah to apply yep. to that company because, you know, in theory, uh, I'm just trying to think of, of an example. Um, but, you know, co- the contractor sector trades on a much lower PE than the healthcare sector. Um, mm. Why Why is that? Because I guess there's a widespread perception that, you know, the earnings are less recurring. It's a higher risk sector um, through time. It's probably more variable um, in terms of a demand profile. Um, so, you know, another, I guess another way of approaching this is thinking, you know, through time, what sort of PE is the market prepared to pay for this stock or sector? Is this always going to be discount sector? Is it always going to be a premium sector? Or, you know, it might, it might be neither. It might, it might actually get a premium for good management, like a company like Macquarie or, or West Farmers does, even though they operate in, in industries where, you know, you can certainly find peers that, um, that don't have the same PE ratios as, as those companies um, mm. do. Um, so yeah, like a, uh, you know, I think, I think that's how we try to do it. Um, we try to get it in, into the valuation as, as much as possible. Um, but then, you know, there's, a, there's another piece that has to happen around portfolio construction after that. And, you know, you've got, we've got to look at every bet that we're taking in the context of, of the overall portfolio.
0: Mm. And that, that, that the perfect segue into it. So um, yeah. because it's ho- the high conviction fund, um, I think the, the, it will just, I I actually really like high conviction funds because I I did a study ages ago when I was studying active managers and I found that investors that take high conviction bets tend to do better if they, but there's always, you know, the catch. They have to be good investors in the first place, but they should back themselves if they know that they are. And um, I'm interested to know how you go about Mm. position sizing. We've talked about like like those fundamental factors. Are there some sort of rules that you have in place like constraints around that? Mm. And um, I'm guessing there are because, you basically taking the Australian ethical investment process and rolling mm. that up into something that's high conviction. So there's probably something unique about it.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, look, look, I guess the first thing, as I said before, is we, we are dealing with a different investment universe. Um, so you, you are going to have a, you're not going to look like everyone else, just purely because, like, for example, um, we we have a very, uh, you know, small investment in the resources sector and, you know, in the energy sector, as you imagine, most of the energy Holdings at Australian Ethical or in New Zealand in the um, mm. sort of hy- hydro and geothermal um, companies like Contact Energy over there. Um, and then, you know, if we would look at the you know, extractive resources uh, sector, you know, we have a very small, small ability to sort of play in that sector. And, um, and, that, and that's because of who we are and, and what and what we stand for. So we are, we are quite different. Um and you know, so one one thing you are introducing, I guess the technical term tracking error um, against mm. against a, a benchmark um, once once you sort of accept that. Um, so I think you know and then when, then when it comes to the actual let's sort of put the universe question to one side and then just look at the way we go about investing. Um, I think you know we we are believers in active That you know when people you know pay for active management, they should get active management. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really I think you know there's quite a few historically there's quite a few funds out there that you sort of pay an active fee for and you kind of get for something sure. that looks quite like the benchmark and funnily enough you can even find it in the ethical space it really worries me when you see it in the ethical space because or the mm. ESG space because you sort of go well you know often often you know you can you, you really would expect that sort of portfolio to look quite different um, mm. than, than, than the index um, and then you know as fund managers when I look at across our team um we want we're trying to we want analysts to be able to express conviction Right, we think we've got the ability to add quite a lot of value why do we think that because we do have these deep pockets of expertise in our in our sectors so you know i've been covering the healthcare sector for a long time there's other people on the team have also covered healthcare it for a long time financials for a long time um and so we think if you can build up and it's not it's actually not just um knowledge of the sector it's also relationships right um, sure. So, you, you, you know, yeah, you've got that point. longitudinal read on management teams um, and, and also, you know, that that again, that sort of read on where businesses are and that very long term, you know, it could be 10, 20 year cycle. I mean, the, the irony about being a, a fund manager is you often you typically outlast the CEO, the business that you're looking at. You, know, you may even see three or four <laughs> yeah. when things aren't aren't going well. And so you, you, do, you do hear the same stories and different narratives and then back to the same narrative um again and so like we're real, real believers in the ability to add value from the bottom up um and you know we do that i think by not necessarily doing it in the same way as everyone else or just looking at the top 20 or, or trying to hug hug an index when you ask me for rules um you know like for example in the high conviction fund you know the maximum position size is about is 10 um, in any single stock um we you know typically uh, won't probably go that large. You know, the biggest position at the moment is about 6.7%. I think 6 to 7% um, is, is, a, is a reasonable size go at something. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not looking at the benchmark. So, you know, that could be, you know, a lot, there could be a lot of active risk in that position. You know, in a company like CSL, which has a big benchmark weight, zero weight at the moment, or BHP clearly zero weight, because it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's, it's not in line with our ethical charter. Um, so... You know, index weight doesn't determine where we see the the, the greatest opportunities. Um, You know, I think to some extent, you know, if it's a very small cap stock or it's a binary outcome style stock, clearly that's not gonna be a five or 6% weight. Um, Analyst conviction is important, you know, you can do all the work and then you sort of say to the analyst, well, it's got a 50% return, what's your level of conviction? And, and, you know, you've got the three things here that could go wrong, Um, you know, how do I know they're not gonna go wrong? Um, how much work have we done on them is there anything else we can do Um, and you know so you you do you do have to sort of weigh up are are we just guessing here and we've got a chance of being wrong or is this an area where we can legitimately add value Um, and then as I said before you kind of want to look at look at the overall portfolio you know if banks are all showing positive alphas well I don't necessarily want to have 50 percent of the portfolio in banks Um, and like frankly you know, a lot of people own banks anyway, um, you know, as, mm. as private investors. And and we think it's actually a strength of our process that we are looking outside of that top 20. And so we kind of blend quite well and bring a set of skills that's a little bit different than what people are when they do when they're building their own their own portfolios.
0: Mm. How about the, the, probably the harder question. So I think uh, not enough time is spent by private investors on portfolio management. Um, and in particular, the, the kind of the understanding the relationship of risks across a portfolio. So mm. how is this risk of this business correlated to that risk? And if you follow the revenue streams and supply chain, you can t- typically find the answers to those questions. Mm. But one of the things is knowing when to sell. I find mm. that we, we talk a lot on podcasts mm. and, you know, newsletters and in the media about, Buy hold sell and typically the buyer that gets the most attention, not the sell, unless it's really polarizing. <laughs> how, how do you, how do you think about you know the, the common reasons that you might end up selling a position? If you have examples, that would help.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, clearly the first point is we're guided by valuation, right? So you know, obviously if a company kind of meets and exceeds our valuation, um, mm-hmm. that's a trigger to sell, and you know, we're not we're not afraid. We we are typically low turnover, um, but we're not afraid to sell a stock. Um, even right. for a long time so you know you've got to, I think you've got to be quite disciplined um, and uh, and you'd be quite conscious of where companies are trading relative to each other and international comps um, and so forth but that's I'm not sure if that's what you're trying to get at because the really hard question is you know clearly uh, things go wrong um, <laughs> so you sort of you know you start with a valuation that's pristine and perfect and a view of the world that um, is perfectly forecastable um, and you know what typically happens is very quickly you learn that um, you know re- reality is a dynamic equation. Mm-hmm. Things don't go according to plan. Uh, companies don't do what they say they were going to do. Uh, businesses uh, are more competitive um, than you thought they, they they were going to be. And so, I think really the hard thing is knowing um, what do you do when things go wrong, or things don't don't go go the way you you're expecting, or even when they go right, because you can you can kind of be lured. Into holding a stock for too long, thinking, "Oh, well, this time's different." You know, it's going so well when really it's just a dog of a cyclical old company that's mm-hmm. going to mean mean reverting time. Um, so you know what? So valuation is one thing. You know that that keeps us on track. Um, you know, you're being hit with noise every day, and so like you really do have to have a filter. Um, you know that's what? Good point, yeah. What is a what is a genuine kind of game changer for this company, and what's just you know, another thing that is, is really immaterial, and, and and I don't need to, to listen to. And it, it sounds like an obvious thing, but you know, markets are very emotional. You know, like so, you know, you can get you can get very attached to companies, and so you, it's not something that you, you really want to do. But you, you know, it's, you know, you sort of pat yourself on the back when they go up, and go and cry when <laughs> they go down, and you know, you can make make some really terrible decisions. So, um, I think I think a key one is 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 staying close. To the sort of story, and you've talked about sort of investment stories in in this podcast, and um, when that story starts to change uh, from management or from a strategic point of view, I think it's a, it's a, it can be a tipping point. Um, mm. I'll give you an example. You know, like we invested in a company in in our Australian shares fund, uh, Australian pharmaceutical industries, and yep. you know we we uh, when Stephen Roach was was managing it, and the story was very much organically uh growth based in the Priceline franchise and you know the story changed. he 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 subsequently departed and then the story changed and but it didn't change overnight it, it just changed gradually to one that was actually about you know more more cautious growth in Priceline um, and more acquisition uh, focused growth and they acquired a, a laser skincare business they actually made a bid for for Sigma um, which we struggled to understand because it was a Sigma was trading at a higher multiple than API at the time, and and these things were sort of uh, warning signs, I guess. Uh, and and we we probably where you know I think one of our biases is we we try to kind of buy strategically attractive assets up front, and we had a view that uh, PriceLine was an attractive franchise, and ultimately it has you know this corporate interest obviously in that in that story now and. Um, you know, I think that position has ended up okay for us, but perhaps we could have put the money to work in a, in a better way elsewhere had we sort of paid attention to some of some of those signs. So there's an example where I think we probably—I I was the analyst—I didn't probably pay enough attention to the way the the story was changing and the pressure that was putting on on, on the balance sheet ultimately. Mm.
0: Do you, as a team, and when the analysts pitch ideas, do they write a research note and then present that to? You?
1: Yeah. Look. So so we we. Um, we all, all the analysts write research notes and and model uh, companies um, within our valuation system um, before we make an investment. And that's after, of course, the company's gone through our sort of rigorous ethical um, screening process. But we don't, one thing we don't do is we don't spend a lot of time sitting around as sort of a team of analysts and kind of debating whether we're right or wrong. Like we, we actually place quite a lot of, we give, We've got a team of analysts that are very senior. We've recently hired more junior analysts, but we've got a team of analysts that are very experienced in their sectors. And so we're quite happy for the portfolio manager and the analyst to sort of jointly make an investment. And that that works best for us when it when it's kind of a collaboration between the, the analyst and the PM. Um, I've worked in other teams where you do spend a lot of time as a team kind of debating is, you know, this company, XYZ, a good franchise or isn't it? Um, and look, that's that's another way of doing it, I think, particularly when you've got a big team or you've got a lot of junior uh, people in that team, that, that can be an important part of your process. But we, we sort of find that we can get through a lot of work this the way that we do it by sort of trying to streamline that, that process. And, and look, frankly, there's always going to be different points of view. And what you kind of don't want in a process is people that know the least about a situation but have the loudest voice yeah. having too much influence. Um, so we, we, we try to kind of get the experts in the room and then often, often make a reasonably quick decision once the work has been done. Um,
0: mm. Yeah, fascinating, I like it. Um, mm. We're going to spend a bit of time in the next episode talking about three companies in particular. That um, I know you know very well. So if you're listening to this and you want to hear more of Mike's um, insights and ideas, um, stay tuned for the next episode. But I thought maybe mate, I would finish with three uh, questions. The same, we, same way we started with rapid fire questions, we'll we'll end um, with this with the same. Um, I've already asked you, I guess, which investor you read, but um, maybe another way to ask this is, uh, what is the, the your favorite book, or um, even I guess. It, going back to like university days or, mm. or you know formative days, what is it, your favorite book on investing, on business, and finance that you've read?
1: Oh look, I I'll just I just go with one of the classics like you know the Intelligent Investor. I mean, it's just you could just keep going mm. back to that forever and and not be disappointed. And it, I, I, for me, it's one of those books that you it, it kind of gets you in the right headspace even when you read it. You know, it's just got such profound wisdom, and you sort of you think, gee, what was I what was I doing yesterday? You know, I was. <laughs> you know I was <laughs> wasn't on the right planet, you know, like let's <laughs> let's get let's let's get back to fundamentals here and really anchor anchor ourselves in in sort of how we're going to make money um, mm. from this portfolio. So yeah i I'll give you that one.
0: Okay. Number two is uh, on the ASX, which company do you think has the strongest brand?
1: Well, what I'm going to give you there is Cochlear, and I think you know even though it's not a um, you know like a wide consumer brand in the sense of sort of a Woolworths or something, you know if you're implanting something into your head, um, there's obviously mm-hmm. an incredible uh, level of importance that it works and it's safe, and it, you know, and they're you know they're just an outstanding company. They've they, they don't they don't cut any corners. They've reinvested in their business. Um, they continue to reinvest in their business. got had excellent management teams um, through time, and, and you know they get it right. Now look, so it's always it's always available on a high PE. Um, it sort of manages mm-hmm. to grow grow into that PE through time, but you know it's a it's a quality company.
0: Mm, I agree. Okay. Final one then. Uh, who is the best CEO you've come across?
1: Look, I'm going to give you another healthcare example. Um, I, I think Brian McNamee at CSL with, you know, was an extraordinary CEO. And I'm, I'm always interested in CEOs where um, you know, things don't always go right. You, know, you kind of think of CS, the, CS, the company CS is, CSL is now. Mm. And, and, but you know, there were certainly times when they made some of the acquisitions that set them up um, for their current success. Um, they didn't work initially, right? You know, they made they made they had currencies moving against them. They're under enormous pressure as a management team for having potentially destroyed a lot of capital. Um, but then you kind of look back now at the journey they've been on in terms of consolidating their global leader leadership position, you know, in, in the plasma industry, the way that industry has been innovative through time and continued to build. It's not, it's not just the fact that they've consolidated the industry, actually the product development um, that's gone on and they've been at the leading edge of that and then into the flu space and, you know, they've obviously acquired another business more recently. Uh, but, you know, those initial plays were very bold plays. Um, they had risk um, and, you know, and, and they've delivered. So, you know, that, that that's my, mm. my suggestion.
0: No, I like it. I like it. Mike, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show today. Um, For those listeners who want to hear more from Mike and and see what the team are invested in, you can head to australianethical.com.au. There's a link in your podcast player. Uh, You can click that and it'll take you to the landing page for the High Conviction Fund and it trades on the CBOE um, under the ticket code AEAE, which is easy to remember. Um, We've talked about you know, what's the best investment you've ever made. And um, you graciously said that it was Australian ethical shares that you bought around (laughs) a dollar, which, which um, that will get you some praise um, from, from the top brass. I'm sure Uh, we talked about how the process comes together through, I guess, the prism of looking at these things like the business model balance sheet, fundamental valuation and expected return uh, and how you weight things in the portfolio. You've brought some great examples to the, to the show as well, mate. So thanks for joining me on this episode. Our listeners will be back uh, next week with another episode with Mike. So. Appreciate your time, mate.
1: Thank you very much, Owen. Good to speak with you.
0: For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing.